Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit... Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. In Romans chapter 8, we discovered as we climb to the top of the mountain in verses 1 through 8, that we are in Christ. We have a new position. We have a new guest, the Holy Spirit, in verses 9 through 14. We have a new adoption. We are members of God's forever family in verses 15 through 17. We have a new hope. What kind of hope is it? The full and final redemption, not only of ourselves, but of everything around us, of the creation. It's the redemption of all things in verses 18 through 25. In Romans, Paul argues... That the believer, the born-again Christian, the person who knows and loves Jesus is free from judgment. That's what we discovered in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're free from discouragement. In verse 2 it says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. We're free from Defeat, look at verse 12. So, my dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation whatsoever to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. And so, there's a problem. And what is the problem? Paul brings it up in verse 17. It's this pernicious problem of pain and suffering. In verse 17, Paul says, and if children, and that's who we are, then heirs. 
And if heirs of God, then joint heirs with Christ. And he marks out that tiny little statement, almost like a parenthetical note. If indeed we suffer with him, that we also might be glorified with him. The person, the timid person, the troubled person will say, wait a minute, you, you mean there's a catch? Oh, I get it. Join God's forever family. Become a Christian. And you mean there's still some pain? There's still some suffering? There's some, some difficulties? Oh, no thank you. There are people who don't want pain and they don't want suffering under any circumstances. But Paul reminds the reader of the paradox that knowing and loving the Lord is also going to sometimes include difficulty, suffering. Sometimes suffering precedes glory. You've probably heard an athlete say, no pain, you know it. No pain, no gain. Dentists advertise, no pain dentistry. I'm here to tell you they're lying. They're not telling you the truth. Don't you believe it? There is no such thing as no pain dentistry. I go to the dentist and I say, no pain. The dentist says, Novocaine. <laughs> Why? Because I have a central nervous system. God blessed me with a central nervous system. And if you didn't have a central nervous system, you would miss it. And with a central nervous system comes the possibility of pain. For the Christian We live in that world of paradox. The Bible says we lose our life to find it in Matthew 10.39. We are both known and unknown in 2 Corinthians 6.9. We are dying yet we possess life. We are sorrowful but we rejoice. We are poor, the Bible says, but we're made rich. The Bible says we possess nothing yet we possess everything. Jesus hungered yet he feeds the multitude. He experienced experiences thirst yet he himself is the living water he pays tribute even though he's the king of heaven he weeps in order to dry our tears he is sold for 30 pieces of silver yet he purchases for the sinner life forever redemption and reconciliation and so we begin to understand That Paul is going to introduce us to a reality that in this thing that we call salvation and in this thing that we call the Christian walk, we are given a resource. It is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is with us even in the presence of trouble, even in the presence of trial, 
even in the presence of suffering and pain. In this chapter, Paul reminds the Christian that the Holy Spirit has made me free in verse 2. The Holy Spirit lives in you in verse 9. The Holy Spirit identifies us and then identifies with us. It says, he who has the Spirit of Christ is in, in Christ. And if you don't have the spirit of Christ, then he is none of his, it says in verse 11. The Holy Spirit quickens and makes alive our mortal bodies in verse 11. The Holy Spirit guides us because we are led by the Spirit of God, it says in verse 14. The Holy Spirit fills our hearts with joy. The Holy Spirit bears witness. That means confirms that there's something going on inside of us. That we've been changed from the inside out. We've been changed in the way that we think. We have been changed. Now Paul confirms that the Holy Spirit has been himself given to us as a pledge in verse 23. A helper or an enablement in verse 23. He helps us with our infirmities in verse 26. He makes intercession, it says in verse 26. He provides us with understanding the idea being that we can begin to process interpret evaluate what's going on around us in verse 27 so paul brings to our attention pain pain in this world look at verse 18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. You might want to skip over that. But I need to put it in perspective for you. When he's writing to the Christians who are in Rome and he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time. This is a group of people who have experienced enormous suffering. More than half of the Roman world are enslaved by Roman masters. They don't have freedom by any stretch of the world word. They don't have health care. They don't have ease. Some of them are experiencing trial and tribulation. Some of you might be experiencing your own form of trial and tribulation. Difficulties in a marriage, difficulty with your health, difficulty with your children, difficulty with your grandchildren. Paul will contrast the present suffering with the future glory. I want you to pause for a moment and consider how does Paul handle trial and tribulation and pain and suffering, he invites the reader to put it into perspective. He he says, I want you just for a moment to consider your suffering in light of the fact that it's nothing compared to the consideration of the exceeding glory which will be revealed in us. The revelation of what will be revealed in us is the reality of Jesus, the glorification of the body, the reconciliation with God. It's the eternal state. And so he says, look, just for a moment, I want you to put it in perspective. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul wrote, for our present troubles... 
are really rather small. They won't last long, yet they produce for us an immeasurably great glory that will last forever. Here's what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't pretend like there is no such thing as pain and and suffering like Buddhism. He doesn't say like the Christian scientists, guess what? The world is an illusion and so is your pain. He doesn't say that at all. Peter adds in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though it's necessary for you to endure many trials for a while. In 1 Peter 6 and 7, it says in verse 7, These trials are only there to test your faith. To show that it is strong and pure. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. And your faith is far more precious to God than mere gold. So if your faith remains strong after being tried by fiery trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor for the day when Jesus Christ will be revealed to the whole world. The Bible says that there's two kinds of faith, tested and untested. Let me be blunt. Untested faith is really no faith at all. By the way, when you purchase a new car, do you want the car to be tested? Do you want the brakes to work? Do you want the gas pedal to work? Do you want the transmission to work? Do you want the electrical system to work? Imagine you're flying in a plane. Do you want all of the components to be there? Can you imagine saying, wait, we didn't test the landing gear before we took off. We figured we had it since we were using it before we took off. You see, the truth is, There are many Bible teachers who are unable or who are unwilling to teach those Bible passages. The passages about, you mean a real faith is a tested faith? Do you mean the real Christian walk will include trial and pain and suffering and sometimes difficulty? Ross Mars writes, quote, Take away my capacity for pain and you rob from me the possibility of joy. Take away my ability to fail and I would not know the meaning of success. Let me be immune to rejection and heartbreak And I wouldn't know the glory of living, unquote. Same is true in marriage, isn't it? Take away voluntary love. Same is true of a Bronco game. Take away the reality that you could lose. No, don't don't confess that. Don't speak those words. This... Guess what? You can't know the joy of victory unless there is present the reality and the possibility of, of defeat. But here's what Paul is talking about. That one of the ways that God marks you and tests you and brings you to a place of humility and submission and dependence upon him is to test you. 
Leith Anderson, who's the new president of the National Association of Evangelicals and also a former Colorado uh, pastor and a seminary professor, writes, and I quote, a shepherd owns the sheep and marks them. In some cases, sheep are branded. Although some sheep are branded, that's really not a popular thing because it damages the wool. Even if a brand is placed through the wool, And into the hide of the lamb, the wool can overgrow it so the brand won't be seen. Today, the ears are pierced with identification tags. But that's a fairly modern invention. For thousands and thousands of years, shepherds around the world mark the ears of their sheep by notching their ears with a sharp knife. Each shepherd had his own distinctive notch for the ear of the sheep. If the sheep gather in a cluster, he can see, even from a distance, which ones are his. I think all of this, he writes, is a lot like being a Christian. For Christians also are those who admit to being owned. And they admit to being marked by Jesus. Sometimes marked painfully. Through suffering and difficulty, he writes, quote, it must be painful for Jesus Christ to allow those marks to be burned and pierced and notched into our lives, unquote. I have a friend who has written a book entitled Marked for Life. Her name is Crystal Woodman Miller. She was one of those girls at Columbine High School. She was one of those girls who, while she was in the library at Columbine, she heard the shots. She heard and then watched the the scene of horror and pain as her classmates were, were not only just being threatened, but were being shot and some of them were being killed. She talks about being under a desk at that library and crying out to God and calling out to God. Some people might think that this is a foxhole conversion. But she really meant it. That she would love the Lord and that she would serve the Lord if the Lord would spare her. God in his grace and his mercy spared her. But she says, make no mistake about it. It marked her. There's certain things that happen in your life that create such a wound and such a scar that it doesn't go away. It marks you. It identifies you. In the 16th chapter of John, Jesus said in verse 33, I've told you all of this so that you would have peace in me. Jesus said, here on the earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but I want you to take heart because I have overcome the world. Another translation says, be of good cheer. In the world, you're going to have many trials and tribulations, but I've overcome the world. You see, the reality isn't that you have to overcome the world because he has already overcome the world. 
It isn't that you have to rise above your trial. You have to rise above your pain. You have to rise above your suffering. Jesus has said, guess what? When you identify with me, sometimes there will be trial. And sometimes there will be pain. And sometimes there will be suffering. But the presence of pain doesn't mean the absence of his love, of his grace, of his mercy, and of his Holy Spirit. Look in verse 19, it says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. What Paul will now do is he'll point to creation itself as an analogy. As he points to creation itself as an analogy, he's going to draw an illustration for you. He basically says when the consummation of all things takes place, the creation, this creation which is broken, this creation which is fallen, this creation which is hurt, the Bible says that God is going to recreate, if you will, creation. To bring the circumstances back to the pre-fall conditions. You see, the Bible talks about the fact that when God created the heavens and the earth, he created it good, not bad. He created it as a place of amazing beauty. And I've got to tell you something. Even in its fallen condition, isn't the creation amazing? The whole universe, it says, the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits. I want you to note that for just a moment. That expression, eagerly waits, is one Greek word. It's a compound word, which has a prefix, a root word, and a suffix. The Greek word is apo, karadokia. Those are three parts. Apo, from, kara, head, dokio, watch. The combination of all of those concepts in Ionic Greek meant to watch with an outstretched head. To watch anxiously. We have a a word that we use even in our own culture and society. We call it rubbernecking. Have you ever heard that expression? rubbernecking. It's when you're driving down the road or you see the ice and the snow that you see and for some reason there's the car on the side of the ditch or on the, on the, off the road and what do you do? What happens to you? You go there's something about an accident that makes people want to look. Paul uses that very same analogy But the wreck that creation is watching is you. It's broken humanity. It's the broken lives and the broken hearts and the pain and the suffering. Creation itself is is seeing, watching, evaluating. It's using that kind of of, of idea. The idea is an absorbed and persistent expectation, an intense watching for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for what? The revealing of the sons of God. 
The revealing here is the very familiar noun apocalypsis. You know that word. It's translated revelation at the end of your Bible. It means the unveiling. The sons of God are those people, those men and women who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and and Savior. The creation is watching. The creation is watching history unfold and the reality of God's plan and the gospel itself as people come into a right relationship with God and through Jesus Christ and creation watches. Creation watches as broken people become whole people, as, as, as guilty people become forgiven people, as empty people become full people, as you see the reality of all of the pain and all of the suffering and all of the heartache. In verse 20 it says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The New Living Translation translates this, against its will. Everything on earth was subjected to God's curse. That captures actually the meaning of the text. For the creation was subjected to futility. It could also be translated vanity. The word that says subjected to futility here in the original language is the idea of looking for something. It's a desperate look. It's a search, but you don't find. You want to find something. You're looking for something, and the search leads to frustration and disappointment. Paul is making reference to the curse in Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. The creation is looking, but creation isn't at fault. We live in a broken world not because this world broke itself. Again, we live in a world where people will ask and answer the question, why is the world the way that it is? For the philosophical naturalist, they'll say the world is the way that it is because this is the way that it always was. Like Carl said, the universe is all there is and all there was and all there ever will be. But does that make sense to you? Does it make sense to you? Death and disease and hurt and pain and emptiness. There seems to be something wrong with that picture. Creation isn't at fault. The Bible says that we're at fault. We're the descendants of Adam. That something went wrong. That human beings in rebellion and disobedience decided to go in a different direction. And as they went into a different direction, they dragged all creation with them. Why? Because remember what Adam and Eve were. They were meant to be the stewards. They had a stewardship over this thing that we call creation. So Paul will use terms like suffering in verse 18, futility in verse 20, bondage of corruption in verse 21, pain in verse 22. In verse 21 it says, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption 
into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Do you want to understand what you're reading? Paul is making a promise that even creation holds out hope that the brokenness that it experiences will one day be turned into what God originally planned. In other words, Paul is basically making the statement that just, be, just like you're in pain and suffering and one day you're going to be made whole, we live in a broken world filled with pain and suffering and one day it will be made whole. And so he points to the world on the outside and then he invites you to look at the pain on the inside. Look at what it says in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Paul begins to ask the reader to identify even with the world in which we're living in, a broken world, uh, something is broken and fallen. Paul compares creation to a woman in labor giving birth. There is pain, but remember, remember what happens with a pregnancy. The pregnancy is going to result in a child. Now, remember, ladies, when you are in the midst of the pregnancy and when you're in the midst of the labor, it isn't unusual for girls to say, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) Guess what? I'm never having another baby ever again. Guess what? You're sleeping on the couch forever. (laughs) Now, all of a sudden, all of the ill will and the threats of vasectomy (laughs) mostly disappear when the baby is born. You have a child. There's a sense of joy that accompanies the reality. We're to take a lesson from creation. That's what Paul is saying. One day the groaning creation will become the glorious creation. The groaning creation will become the glorious creation. And the groaning Christian will become the glorious Christian. Today's bondage will be exchanged for tomorrow's liberty. Creation longs for the day of liberation. And as John Phillips says, quote, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. And so in verses 19 through 22, Paul reveals four principles. Number one, principle number one. Our groans are temporary. You know what that means? So is our pain and so is our suffering. Number two, the groaning is a a means to an end. What does that mean for you? That the difficulty now isn't going to be a difficulty forever. And number three, the groan is a result of sin. We groan as a result of sin. And number four, groaning is universal. It isn't just simply something that happens to you. It's something that happens to everybody. Grief, suffering, pain are universal. But grief and suffering are also personal. And so Paul's attention will turn 
not just to the fallen world in which we live, but the personal circumstances that each and every one of us carry in our lives. How should we respond to pain and suffering? Paul basically says, get the right perspective. Make sure you understand it's temporary. Make sure you understand it's a means to an end. Make sure you understand that it's a result of sin. Make sure that you understand that it's universal. And then he basically says, and make sure you understand that it's going to result in glorification. In verse 23, look what it says. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. He uses the analogy of creation, looking forward to wholeness and wellness. And then he says, now also you look forward to wholeness and wellness. In what way? You've been given a down payment for all of eternity. The first installment that you have in this thing called eternal life is the presence, the presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. I think you all know that everything that is temporary will remain temporary. And everything that is eternal will be eternal. And so Paul says, we ourselves groan. Why? We're waiting for our adoption papers to come through. This is interesting because he's mixing his metaphors. Remember, we've already talked about a woman, the creation, giving birth. And now he uses the illustration of adoption. He's used it earlier in the text. We're waiting for our adoption papers to come through. In what way are we adopted? We're adopted because we are in Christ. We were estranged from God and we were estranged from Christ. And now we're waiting for our permanent placement. We're waiting for our permanent residence. Deep within us, there is this taste of eternity that has left a lingering and a longing for more. I was watching, of all things, a movie. And in the movie, you have a hero and you have a villain. And in the movie, the hero has regenerative powers where it makes it impossible for this person to die. And the villain wants those regenerative powers. And the villain says in the movie, the only kind of life that has real meaning is eternal life. And I thought, you know, that's true. Meaningful life is eternal life. The Bible says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. God has planned a glorious resurrection with a new and an immortal body. In eternity, there'll be no physical limitations. And will exist. There's no physical deformities. There's no disease. There's no depression. There's no discouragement. I want you to think about it. For those of you who have hair. You'll never have to dye it ever again. For those of you who want hair. 
you'll have it exactly where you want it. And for those of you who have hair where you don't want it, it'll go away. We're going to be free. Just like you've been given a body that's appropriate for where you live right now. You'll be given a body that's appropriate for where you'll be forever. And so, we'll be free. The reason we groan is because we've tasted the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. Just like the spies who went into the land of Canaan in Numbers chapter 13, they went into the land of Canaan. They didn't live there, they still lived in the wilderness. But as they made their way across the border and they saw the gigantic pomegranates and they saw the the gigantic clusters of grapes, as they saw the milk and the honey and they tasted it and they wanted it. And you who have experienced what it means to have a right relationship with God and Christ and he's placed his Holy Spirit inside of you. He's given you a taste of freedom. He's given you a taste of forgiveness. He's given you a taste of love. He's given you a taste of life. You go, mmm, that's yummy. I don't want it just now. I want it forever. And so in verse 24 it says, for we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? The text literally says, quote, For we are saved by that hope. The New Living Translation says, Now that we are saved, we're eagerly looking forward to this freedom. For if you already have something, you don't need to hope for it. In what way? The Bible says you were saved when you came to Christ. In the past, Jesus died on the cross. You are being saved in the present. As you are molded and shaped and made into the image of Jesus. As you adopt his character. And you will be saved. In what sense? In the sense that you are being saved and you will be saved ultimately when this physical body is put aside and you are glorified forever. That's the meaning. Hope is a fixed certainty in the Bible. Hope in the Bible isn't like Christmas. Where at Christmas time you go, ooh, I hope I get an iPad. I hope I get an iPad. Ooh, I hope I get... Whatever. A bicycle. I hope I get this. I hope I get that. In our culture and society, we've come to think of hope as something that we expect, but maybe yes and maybe no. But in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, it says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope. The hope of your calling. In the Bible... Hope isn't maybe yes, maybe no. Hope is a certainty. So what hope is Paul talking about? I'm going to suggest to you in verse 24, look what it says. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is not seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? I'm going to suggest to you that he's talking about two things. He's talking about the hope of Jesus' return. 
But he's also talking about the hope of the glorification of the body. In Titus chapter 2 verse 13, the blessed hope is the coming of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We are hoping and we are waiting, but we have all of the benefits right now. Salvation is complete now. We are saved now, but we will receive our inheritance in the future. Warren Wiersbe writes, temporary suffering will give way to eternal glory. And you know about that temporary suffering, some of you, as you crawled out of bed this morning. You didn't just groan on the inside, you groaned on the outside. Oh, man, it's cold. Oh. Again, being 19 is very, very different from being 59. That little 40-year spread can make quite a difference. And so he talks about the pain in our hearts. Look at verse 25. It says, but if we hope, but if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. What is it that we hope for that we do not see? The presence of Jesus. The reality of Jesus. But also glorification, a glorified body that's appropriate for eternity. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We haven't seen the promised land of heaven. We haven't experienced a glorified body. Unless, of course, you work out at the gym and you think a glorified body is six-pack abs. And you go, I have a glorified body. Actually, that's not what the text is talking about. It's talking about the body that's going to be appropriate for where you're going. God is concerned about your suffering and your trial. The Lord knows about the weakness of the body that you carry around with you. He knows about your eyes and your ears. He knows about your life. He cares about your pain. He cares about your trial. He cares about the pain in your heart. Because look what it says in verse 25. We eagerly wait for it with perseverance. In what, in what way? The Greek word for perseverance is hupomone. Hupomone is that Italian sounding word which really means... The expectation of something better. This is the kind of expectation that produces patience. This is the kind of patience that produces freedom. This is the kind of freedom that produces glory. In verse 26 it says, Likewise the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. The weaknesses are the sum and the substance of all of the frailties that you are apart from Christ. Remember, I helped you understand that the word flesh means everything that you are apart from Christ. I think the same could be said of the word weaknesses. 
For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit, Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which can't be uttered. Let me ask you a question. How many of you realize that Paul is no stranger to weakness? Many of you. Suffering. Pain. Problems. Persecutions. Let's get a peek at Paul's trials, the guy who wrote this. This is not an ivory tower theologian speaking in the hypothetical. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul writes, Are they ministers of Christ? Speaking of the apostles, I speak as a fool. I am more, and labor is more abundant, in stripes above measure. He's not talking about the military. He's talking about being beaten. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. If you're wondering what a rod is, it's like a dowel. It's a piece of wood that would have been around three inches thick. And you would have been beaten with it. A night I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. Those of you who have been outside in six degree weather, imagine you're floating on a piece of wood in the middle of the Mediterranean. And you don't have any ability to get warm. Paul understands. And so Paul doesn't want to leave you without hope and encouragement. By the way, if you're a counselor, if you're a person who cares about other people, if you are a person who God uses, then you should pay attention to what I'm about to say. People in pain and people in suffering, they need hope. They need encouragement. They need to know that God has a plan. They need to know that God isn't going to leave you high and dry. They need to know that you can and should cast your gaze towards heaven. And the first ray of hope comes as Paul writes. And he says, guess what? In the midst of all of your pain and all of your problems and all of your persecution and all of your suffering. The Holy Spirit is inside of you. Praying for you. That's what Paul says. The real spirit of God is really inside of you. The greater the groan, the greater the glory, the weaker our spirit, the stronger his support. Can you imagine if you've ever come to a place where you go, I don't have anything to give, I don't have anything to offer, I have nowhere to go, and I have nothing to say, then you are in the perfect position where you can... Have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Make intercession for everything that you need. That's the idea. Kent Hughes writes, quote, The Holy Spirit says those things we want to say, but we can't say. I like that. The Spirit helps our weaknesses. In what sense? Again, the great Greek scholar A.T. Robertson says, quote, The Holy Spirit lays a hold of our weakness along with, that's S-Y-N, and carries us, carries his part of the burden facing us, anti. 
as if two men were carrying a log, one at each end. So the, the picture that the word gives and that A.T. Robertson gives is imagine the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And the Holy Spirit understands that you have a burden. And your burden is a log. And at one end of the burden is you. And at the under, other end of the burden is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit doesn't just simply shout or whisper encouragement. The Holy Spirit rolls up his metaphorical sleeves and picks up our and bears our burden. He bears our weakness. And so the Bible says you have two intercessors, one inside of you on the earth and one in heaven, Jesus Christ, the Lord, whoever lives and makes intercession for you. I think that that's amazing. You know, I heard a great illustration on this point. Have you ever broken down on the side of the road? For whatever reason, our favorite area to break down is north of Santa Fe, but south of the pass of, Gl- of Glorieta up there, it, you know, in the wilderness of northern New Mexico. In other words, we have this uncanny ability to break down in the middle of nowhere where it would take hours and hours for people to find you. And I heard the story of a wealthy Englishman who bought a Rolls Royce. And he went on vacation in France. And after he purchased the Rolls Royce, he had some car trouble. And so he calls England in order to make repairs to his Rolls Royce. And the Rolls Royce company flew the mechanic from England to France in order to make the repairs on his car. And when the man asked for a bill, he got this note back from Rolls Royce. Dear sir. We have no record of anything ever having gone wrong with your car. You laugh, but that's the exact meaning of justification. The exact meaning of justification is we have no record that anything ever went wrong. We have no record that you were anything other than in Christ. I want you to think about that for a moment. Because there will come a time, and that's part of the point that Paul is making, that the record of your pain and the record of your suffering and the record of your trial and the record of your tribulation will have disappeared. We sing that song, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. In the vagueness of the memory that used to be your life, you'll wonder if anything ever went wrong. That's the expression of the depths of our needs. Today we say, my life is falling apart. My marriage is falling apart. My world is falling apart. I feel like I'm broken. I'm feeling like the world on the outside is filled with pain. And the world on the inside is filled with pain. And Paul says, persevere. The Holy Spirit cares. The Holy Spirit is at work. 
You know, in Mark's gospel, Jesus ran into a man who was deaf and he had a speech impediment. And the man's friends begged Jesus to put his hand on him. And the Bible says that Jesus took the man aside from the crowd and he put his fingers in his ears. And it says, then Jesus spat and touched his tongue. I know what you're thinking. Go. And you go. Jesus spits. And then places that spit on his tongue. And you're going, that's gross. But then the text says something amazing. It says, then looking up to heaven, Jesus sighed and said, Eth, fatah. That's an Aramaic word. Be opened. The very next verse says in verse 35, immediately his ears were opened And the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus did something. If you think that's remarkable, then he does something even more remarkable. He says, don't tell anybody. Can you imagine living in a world where there is no sound? And living in a world where you can never speak a word. And for the first time in your life, you can hear. And you can speak. And Jesus says, I know you can hear for the first time. And I know you can speak for the first time. But don't let anybody know where, you, where this happened. You just go, what? What? How can I not speak? The Bible says that the people were astonished beyond, beyond measure. And they said he's done all things well. In verse 27, it says, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. God the Holy Spirit prays to God the Father, who searches the human heart in order to pray for everything that is in perfect agreement with your ultimate good. Lord, I don't know what's, for, what's best for me. The Holy Spirit inside of you does. I don't know if it's good for me to be with that person. The Holy Spirit knows. I don't know if it's good for me to go to that school or go in that direction or, or, or be with that person. The Holy Spirit knows. In the plan of salvation. God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are at work to make sure that you're saved in the past, and you're saved in the present, and you're saved in the future. Are you in pain? Are you depressed? Are you discouraged? Are you frustrated? Paul says, I need you to think about a new perspective. I need you to understand that your groans are temporary. I need you to understand that it's a means to an end. I need you to understand that it's the result of sin. I need you to understand that every painful circumstance that you're facing has already been faced. But brokenness Brokenness will bring you to a place of dependence. 
In Psalm 51.1, the psalmist says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Paul says, Your sins are forgiven. Now remember, the Holy Spirit gives us the assurance that we belong to God. He confirms the truthfulness of God's word by bearing witness. He convinces us that our inheritance comes from faith. He comforts us in our trial and suffering. And remember, remember, remember. The Holy Spirit liberates us in verse 2. Look, he made me free. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us in verse 9. He dwells in you. The Holy Spirit empowers you in verse 11. He makes alive your mortal bodies. The Holy Spirit guides you in verse 14. You're led by the Spirit of God. Look at what it says. The Holy Spirit fills you with joy in verse 16. He gives you cheer as he bears witness to the reality of your new condition. The Holy Spirit helps you in verse 26. In your weakness, the Holy Spirit prays for you. He makes intercession in verse 26. The Holy Spirit interprets in verse 27. How? The Holy Spirit makes known to you the mind of the Father and the character of the Son. So you won't be confused. And so you won't be deceived. Can you imagine why Paul wants to spend so much time on the top of this mountain as you think about what the future holds for you? And guess what? We're still only on the shoulder. We have yet to make it to the top of the mountain. It's going to be in the very next verse. So we still have a little bit of a climb left ahead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look with anticipation to see further than we've ever seen before as we go from the shoulder to the very top of the peak and we look into the future. A future that's been revealed by the Holy Spirit about what awaits each and every one of us in eternity. And Heavenly Father, we pray, we pray, we pray that as we live in a world of pain, that Lord, we would remember that our groans are temporary, that it's a means to an end. We understand that we live in a fallen world. And it makes sense to us that sometimes the pain is going to be shared. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would allow it to have its perfect work. That if we identify with Jesus in life, and if we identify with Jesus in love, if we identify Jesus in pain, in rejection, in humiliation, and suffering, that, Lord, he will identify with us in the future. And so, Lord, again, we thank you and praise you and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.